Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Good morning everyone and thank you for joining us. So this is a Surviving Society Spotlight episode. My name is Ilyas Nagdi and I am the guest host for this episode. Today we're going to be talking about the guidance released by the Department for Education at the end of September related to relationship sex and health education in schools, which was widely criticised by Black organisers, by anti-racist academics and activists across the board. So today we're going to be talking about the legal challenge that has been raised by the Black Educators Alliance and the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators. So with us today, we have Aliyah and Camille. Hi, I'm Aliyah. I am a 17-year-old student currently doing my A-levels and also a campaigner and founder of a movement called People Power. As a movement, we try to encourage other young people to challenge what the 21st century education system looks like as well as sort of empowering and encrypting us with the skills to lead change within schools and the wider education system. My name is Camille London-Mayo. I have been senior leader and middle leader for over 15 years. I am also a member of CARE, the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators and the Black Educators Alliance, and I'm also an English teacher. PSHE guidance is a thinly veiled attack on a wide range of movements. It's attacking social justice causes and will also prevent pupils from learning about alternative political ideas. This guidance ensures that only the government's political preferences are taught in the classroom with the banning of teaching materials, certain specified teaching materials. And as educators, we're committed to anti-racist work. We're gravely concerned about the way that this guidance appears to censor materials produced by anti-racist organisations and activists. PSHE over the years has developed to really be truly representative and provide avenues for anti-racist organisations to be able to disseminate literature, resources into schools in order to ensure that our young people have critical minds and be able to develop independent thought. Okay, thank you very much for explaining what the guidance means there, Camille. I definitely noticed that once the guidance came out, we saw like a lot of heavy criticism, not only from educators and from teachers and politicians and activists alike. But there was also a lot of widespread criticism from pupils about what they were learning in the classroom being policed. Aliyah, did you find that amongst your peers, many people were sort of heavily criticizing the fact that, you know, they could no longer learn about potentially about things like Black Lives Matter in the classroom, about the histories of race and racism? 100%. There was a sense of like frustration, concern. A lot of us had come to the consensus that like the curriculum that we have already is inadequate and so to think about them implementing these like further guidance which was going to limit and restrict what we learn even more was super worrying and something that just felt really unsettling and especially I think the timing was even more stark I think coming out of lockdown like having to return back to school and not being in school for so long in the current climate that we're in where we've had protests and so much going on and so much I would say especially from educators I've been aware like how teachers and like schools are trying to take more of a role in having these conversations so for this guidance then to be released it almost just kind of put a massive stop to it all 
I honestly don't even have words to describe how it made myself and so many other of my peers feel because we have so much to say on it and we think it's so important not only students like ourselves that are already engaged in movements like this but other students that maybe aren't and I'm not exposed to materials and stuff like that and so going to school and like actually having that education is super super important and critical and so the fact that it's being taken away is just really concerning yeah and just picking up on one of the points that you raised there is around the fact that like how often we get to have these conversations in the classroom already right how in fact like many conversations so I'm thinking back to to my days like in high school uh, and my days back in primary school and the fact that actually loads of these conversations that we were having then pretty much didn't exist within the context of the curriculum the only time we ever got to talk about race was when people were coming in externally like either as part of agencies or external speakers uh, who were coming in to talk about those topics to us and I went to a school that was like majority black and brown you know the fact that we never got to explore these topics quite often did leave that little gap not only in the curriculum but also like at a time when a lot of people are trying to reconcile the ideas of like modern day Britain with themselves right 100% and I think I would agree like I don't think these conversations are happening when they do it's literally we rely on external people to come in and sort of do that because teachers again I don't know whether it's a combination of feeling uncomfortable or I, I honestly can't give a reason for why it doesn't happen but I think as a student who knows that it needs to be happening I had a lot of hope that like when we came back from lockdown okay now maybe even if it's just an inch more than what we were doing before maybe now certain people especially within schools feel like it's realize the importance of why we need to have these conversations just maybe just maybe like we can push forward a little bit more than we were before which I was you know perfectly happy to accept but now the guidance yeah it completely prohibits that from happening and so I think hearing my my peers reactions and my teachers reactions yeah no no one is sort of happy and and I think it's made where there was a a sort of sense of feeling uncomfortable to talk about things from the teacher's perspective, it's heightened that to another level. I mean, one of the things that I've definitely realised over the last few years, I mean, and the thing is like black teachers have been doing this work for decades around ensuring that, you know, the kids in their classrooms are able to uh, have these important conversations. But there's been a massive shift within the rest of the country as well, where as a result of lobbying primarily from black and brown teachers, as well as students, Uh, more and more education providers are having to, you know, get on board with these campaigns to decolonize the curriculum and talk about migration and race and the history of empire. And I guess, is that something that you started to see increasingly happening within your school and within your, uh, within the teachers networks you have? And do you think this guidance in in and of itself is then a reaction to that? I think that as a result, I mean, Obviously, the the issue of decolonizing the curriculum has been more prominent in the last year or so. As black educators, we have been working on this tirelessly for years. I've been in the profession over 30 years and my entire career, I have been working on trying to decolonize aspects of the teaching of English. In essence, we've become more prioritized, more focused, I think, has been since Black Lives Matter, since the death of George. Floyd within the black networks that I'm involved in there were almost automatic responses on how we could bring in aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement within the curriculum materials that were being developed as to how we could explore and get 
our young people discussing elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, getting them to think about why the question, why people would go and pull down a statue, what was the history behind that, how we could integrate it, not just in PSHE, but in all the subjects across the curriculum. And it was really a lively period of time. It was just with things coming through all the time. And then this guidance came up and it's like everybody just stopped and thought, well, what does that mean for all the all the things that we have been bringing together, all the ways we, we were thinking how it would impact on the teaching going forward? And particularly because of COVID, particularly because of the curriculums that people were talking about and us saying, well, as Black educators, what we have to be doing is we have to be not only talking about Black Lives Matter, but also nurturing our young people and supporting them to restore some of their faith in mankind and everything as a result of COVID and their uncertainties. And then this PSHE guidance came out. Yeah, and I guess that leads us perfectly into going into the guidance itself a little, in a little bit more detail. So when the guidance was released, there was widespread criticism, particularly of the fact that the guidance like quite firmly laid out restrictions on dispersing anti-capitalist material in the classroom. However, we know from the terminology within there that there were other targets of the guidance who were, you know, either just subtly named or inferred. So Camille, can I ask you to maybe talk about the guidance in a little bit more detail? In it, we saw the, you know, the language of uh, don't let uh, external educators that promote victim narratives come in or resources that criticize the state without offering alternative views. So can I ask you to quickly talk about the guidance in a bit more detail? When the guidance referred to these victim narratives, the biggest question we had as Black educators was, well, who is the victim and what narratives are you talking about? Obviously, it was clear it was about the issues to do with institutional racism, to do with um, the way that Black people have been seen and the narratives that have been developed about Black people, about certain communities that we have been trying to redress. So, What we saw as Black educators was that it meant that we couldn't talk about the background to the Causedon statue. We couldn't talk about police brutality, the impact on young Black people, not not even young Black people, Black people generally, as they go about their daily business. We couldn't talk about that in the classroom. We couldn't talk about the effects of racism in education, in the workplace. These are things we couldn't talk about anymore, even though they were the things that our young people wanted to talk about when they came into our classrooms. That's part of what it was saying. It also was telling us that we couldn't talk about anything that was anti-capitalist. So then that suggests then that capitalism is the only way that our economies can work. It suggests then that we can't look at the examples of societies like Cuba where education is free up to university and that it's working. We couldn't talk about that anymore because it wasn't part of the capitalist narrative. And so, again, it made it harder for us then to think about how could we encourage our young people to want and strive for a better world? What could we say to them? And that is our role as educators, to inspire and encourage. That is fantastic, Camille. Thank you so much for that uh, detail. I guess coming to you earlier, it's when you see language like that around the victim narratives and, you know, the restrictions of your imaginations being enforced by 
the government through this guidance and from the Department for Education. How do you think that makes you feel or what do you think the intention of that quite purposefully is? There's quite a lot to unpack there. I think the first thing coming to how it makes me feel, I think it's quite harming when you talk about victim narratives. Similar to what has just been said, it's like, who is the victim and what narratives are you exactly referring to? And when you come to explore things like institutional racism and the sort of narratives that come from that it makes you think about okay well as a student are we now not allowed to speak about things like this or but when it when you talk about victims it's like very much the idea that you know you're you're a victim of something and so that you don't feel comfortable to speak about it and so you're now encouraging that conversation not to happen on another level and that's really really again alarming and in terms of again we I think the purpose and the intentions behind it, it comes back to being in lockdown, not being at school and so much organising and activism and so much sort of power was was held within that period. And it was so it was so powerful. It was so uplifting and it, it instilled such a, a sense of hope and faith and just like, OK, do you know what? Like this period hasn't been exactly the best for any of us, but we've realised things that we haven't realised before. We are out of a system that we were sort of trapped in from Monday to Friday where we weren't able to see things for the way they were. And now we've realised these things. Let's do things differently when we get back and let's talk about how we're going to do that differently. So it almost feels like all those conversations, all those Zoom calls, all the things that young people and, you know, adults, educators and people in school were participating in has almost just been chucked in a bin or not even chucked in a bin. It's almost like we're going to put your our finger over your lip and actually stop that from that conversation from entering the school gates essentially it is really scary as like leading people power we talk about how are we going to reimagine the 21st century education system the education we're receiving and the school experience that we're having is clearly not fit for purpose and there's clearly and evidently issues within it and I'm not just talking about from a black young person's perspective it's it's from everybody no matter if you have a disability you know different stages of the education system there's just there's just so many issues on different levels affecting people from different backgrounds and different experiences and we realize that and so for now this guidance to be handed out is almost stopping us from even being able to challenge that idea of what we have now and what we want to develop in the future I think yeah going back to it the classroom is a space for young people where we can talk about things we can discuss issues in a like judgment-free zone teachers my teachers anyway have always encouraged us to to challenge things and always to you know there's there's always going to be differences in the classroom of opinions based on people's backgrounds but we nurture those differences in a sense where it's there's no judgment and so like now this guidance is just again stopping people from having those debates having those discussions and learning from one another and it's just I'm just really disappointed to be honest. Yeah thank you so much for that Aaliyah that is you did a really great job there of linking throughout sort of how we can see the really clear plans in place to sort of enforce the depoliticization of the classroom and I guess one of the things I wanted to pick up on what you were talking about was you know, that period where we were in during the height of the protests, where quite a lot of people forget that actually almost all the organisers for many of these demonstrations were primarily sort of insurgency campaigns. There were young organisers popping up across the country um, and organising shows of force within their local community. Like now when we reflect on it, we remember the sort of, you know, the the widespread reading lists and different things. But actually at the time, it was just primarily shows of force that were being organized. And we've seen our classrooms become sites of those shows of force increasingly over the last few years, right? Like the climate strikes came from the youth of the country organizing in their classrooms and in their schools. 
Uh, and so we know that this guidance also is like wider than just the events of the summer. It's also a response to that. It's a response to the fact that schools have always been a site of struggle uh, within uh, sort of progressive movements, whether it was school walkouts for the Iraq war, whether it's the climate strikers or now. So just building on that idea, how do you see this impacting the opportunity for young people in terms of trying to create change within society more more broadly like we know schools have played an important role within that in the past and did you see sort of your networks from schools uh playing a part in it this time around as well i would say to some extent like organizing and this idea of developing yourself so you can use the skills that you've learned from school to go outside into the world and you know create the change that you want to create and things like that i think happens only to a limited extent extent I think all the skills I've personally developed have been from outside of school and beyond school unfortunately moving forward school was going to change for the better in a sense of teachers were becoming more more accepting of the fact that yeah youth activism and this sort of power that young people hold was on a rise and so it was it was looking really exciting where you know teachers were trying to think about and reflect on how we can incorporate activism and encourage activism within the classroom and again develop those skills so that young people can forge that change I, I don't think any change is possible without reimagining what things can be like imagination is such an important skill that again doesn't really get nurtured or fostered within the current education system if you don't believe change is possible then it's almost like what are we what are we fighting for and so when we think about the guidance yeah it's dangerous of the fact that we the government are trying to stop young people from reflecting and stop young people from reimagining and stop young people from believing that more is is possible um and in fact it's just saying to us accept what you have now what you have now is good and we don't want you to consider any other ideas and maybe it's because young people are seen as a threat because of you know how much power they hold a young person obviously in school already like I'm in sixth form now but across my experience within school I've definitely identified the sort of like structures the power structures that have been within school I've definitely experienced on countless occasions where I try to raise my voice on something or challenge something and I've been shut down for it and so this is just another way into sort of like stopping that and unfortunately I think what scares me the most is the fact that not everybody has been exposed to an an education where they are able to criticize and challenge things and so for those that haven't had that now having this guidance is going to sort of laminate the experience that they have already had which is of course not great you know as they're going on beyond school because yeah you need to be able to encourage other people's opinions and you know embrace that and I think with the guidance outrightly saying that they want to you know make sure that young people are having alternative viewpoints talk to them the guidance is not doing that whatsoever the guidance is literally saying our viewpoint is the viewpoint we want our young people to be taught and that is it and it's not accepting any other alternative opinions or debate the key thing for me that you pulled out there especially towards the end where you were talking about the fact that this guidance is essentially cementing the policing of our opinions and of ideologies uh, which are considered legitimate and illegitimate to be taught within the classroom uh, exactly. and i want to bring in that that line um and that line of thinking around like the policing um because i was thinking specifically about the parts of the guidance that were 
criticized by trans people, particularly by trans organizers. And this was around the fact that the guidance explicitly says uh, that teachers should not reinforce harmful stereotypes, for instance, by suggesting that children might be a different gender based on their personality and interests or the clothes they prefer to wear. So it's really clear from that guidance exactly who that's targeting. That is seems to be like a big affirmation given to, you know, the gender critical community who are immensely critical of the fact that we are living in a society where we are seeing progress to the extent that more and more trans people feel comfortable expressing themselves in the way that they wish. We've seen like a big conservative pushback against that. And now they're trying to cement that by forcing teachers to stop policing the way that children behave and almost policing children's gender identities and the way they wish to express themselves. So I just wondered if any of you want picked up on that in your readings of the guidance or commentary you've seen around that. What's really important is some of the language that was used there in the sense that teachers shouldn't suggest what children should wear and and how they should behave. My understanding of being an educator is that you give children the opportunity to explore how they identify themselves. And to be absolutely honest with you, in everything that I have seen in terms of this guidance, it doesn't really understand what's going on in the classroom if it says things like that. The reality of what happens in the classroom is that, and has increasingly happened in the classroom, is that we are trying to achieve a balance that says that every child is valued regardless of their race, their sex, their gender. It is an inclusive education system that we are trying to develop. I'm not saying we're there yet, but I'm saying that is what we have been trying to develop. And what this guidance has done is it has stopped it in its tracks. It has stopped educators from being, and and to be fair, no, it hasn't stopped us, but we are more mindful of what we can and we can't do. Whereas before, we might have said, okay, yes, we can invite people from different organizations in to talk about gender, to talk about any group. We could come and we could invite them in. But what is happening now is that we are thinking, well, can we invite them in or can't we? Does it impede on the guidance or doesn't it? And people are more wary. I've seen more about teachers in the last month, couple of months, where they've been more willing to use the word black in terms of what they're talking about. They've been more willing to challenge um, perceptions and ideas about things because of what has come to the fore. And then this guidance comes in and challenges all of that all over again. So it's not about teachers suggesting ideas that, that this government things are wrong, thinks are wrong. It's about teachers providing a balanced picture of the world as it exists and in including everybody as it's as opposed to excluding. Just staying on this theme of policing, like one of the things that we've seen is actually, although this guidance specifically polices the curriculum and the content within the classroom, we've also seen a massive rise of policing within the classroom and within schools, right, over the last few years. After Prevent was made a statutory duty to be enforced in schools, we've seen like tons of examples of young people being referred to Prevent for the most absurd things, whether it's misspellings or drawings or, you know, or even repeating back things that are being taught within the classroom. Um, we've also seen in places like Manchester, community campaigns like No Police in Schools pop up. 
to combat the introduction of school-based police officers. Um, so where, what do you think about like, how does the future look within this world where, you know, we're not only being policed in our thoughts, but we're being policed sort of physically within the schools um, and, the wide, the, and the implications that can have for young people, especially young people from marginalised backgrounds? The only thing we can do is what um, CARE and BEA are doing now, which is challenging the legislation. We have to challenge it. Um, we have no choice because this guidance, even though I, I thought that the government were backtracking, but they didn't, um, and... It's, it's about us challenging the legislation and actions like that cost money. Um, we're educators, we don't really have a lot of money and so we actually need help. This is a serious attack on civil liberties. It, it's seeking to erase our identities, silence our discussions that are integral to our development and the well-being of our students. And we believe that education in the classroom is the route to effectively challenging this disproportionate power and privilege that exists in our society and beyond. Please donate whatever you can to support us in our action in not just securing legal representation for the judicial review, because we need to cover our legal costs for our pre-action work and to initiate proceedings. So it really is about challenging the legislation because it's only when we do that that change will come. Thank you so much for that, Camille. That was a brilliant sort of guide into the legal challenge, DfE guidance that has been launched by the Coalition for Racist, Anti-Racist Educators uh, and the Black Educators Alliance. Um, so you can find out more about the challenge to the DfE guidance at crowdjustice.com slash case slash liberate our classrooms. Um, so we have sent a letter to the Department for Education, which the Secretary of State responded to uh, in the middle of October. Based on that response, we believe that there is a phenomenal, uh, that we have the opportunity to make a really strong case uh, for judicial review. So we have put a call out for evidence. And again, I just want to highlight and point everyone to crowdjustice.com slash case slash liberate our classrooms to find out more about the evidence that we're looking for. That it's really, really important that if you don't know about this guidance, that you look into it. Look on the CARE website, look at um, our Twitter. Um, you'll get all the information you need on it. But please, please, please support us because this is about the future of our young people. It's about the future of what we want for our generations to come. Thank you. Aliyah, yeah, I guess just to sort of bring you back in on that sort of last question that I was asking Camille around uh, the, about the wider sort of attack on our civil liberties and on the policing of our classrooms. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Have you started to see even more of that? Do you have classmates and students in your classrooms who have raised concerns about things like the prevent duty and about, you know, the, about when police officers coming to schools and things like that. And how do you think increasing that sort of securitization within our spaces of education, uh, as this guidance does, impacts on young people today? So I think from my personal experience of school, I didn't actually see it. Um, I don't know whether it was because, I don't know whether I went to an all-girls school, I don't know what it was, but I think then having like my brother's school he, he went to an all-boys school like literally around the corner um having discussions with him and he was like yeah it's literally the norm um it's what we see and I think with my brother as well like he wasn't it was something that he was almost so used to from when he walked in probably from from year seven that like he never really saw a means to challenge it 
although he knew it didn't make him feel comfortable, although it was something that was quite, you know, unsettling, quite sad to say, but I think it was just so, so normal. And so he didn't challenge it or he didn't question it. And I think that's what doesn't sit right with me. The fact that guidance like this is stopping young people from challenging things and reflecting on how things can be better. And like I said, lockdown has been that period where we we started to develop those sort of like critical thinking skills so much that we were then prepared to go into school with a, a whole different mindset on how like transformation looks like within education. Um, I just think that this sort of guidance definitely stops that. Definitely. And that, that appears to be the absolute intent of it, right? To clamp down on the ability for young people, for students and for teachers to transform their curriculums. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this not only in sort of Kemi's uh, anti-critical race theory rants within the House of Commons. A lot of this is just anti-knowledge from government ministers and ideologues um, where they want to instill like an authoritarian system wherein, you know, all of these separate things that we've seen occurring in the UK, such as, you know, the Overseas Operations Bill, which gives immunity for people to commit uh, war crimes if they're part of the British Army, the Spy Cops Bill, which lets people spy on progressive movements, left-wing groups, trade unions, anyone who they think to be operating in terms of trying to materially change the, the lives of people, right, uh, for the better. We've seen it in France over the last few weeks with the clampdown uh, specifically on Muslim organizations uh, and those who are doing advocacy work on behalf of marginalized communities. When we look at all of these, what we start to see from there is what Camille was talking about. It's the fact that this has been done because progressive movements are on the rise. The resistance to the status quo is on the rise. It's growing. That coalition is, is growing. It is growing strong. It is well equipped for the challenges that come ahead. And that's precisely why guidance like this has been created to stop the stem of progress, right? Um, and I guess coming back to that last point that Camille was making, it's about the fact that, you know, we're not powerless in this situation. There are things that we can do. That's why the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators and the Black Educators Alliance has begun this legal challenge um, to the government's guidance um, in this instance. But we're not just organizing around a legal challenge. We're not just organizing around a judicial review or anything. You know, We're doing the important day-to-day -day work of organizing, of creating these teachers, student coalitions, uh, where we bring people like Camille and Aliyah together and we bring uh, people across the country and, you know, across the world together to think about the importance of education as a transforming space. And the fact that actually we believe in an education system that gives people the opportunity to do that important work that Aliyah was talking about of reimagining society, of reimagining what progress looks like. Um, and that's precisely why you see the decrying of Black Lives Matter. That's why you see the fact that the government guidance says they don't want people critical of the state within schools, because why would you want someone coming into the classroom to talk about the harmful impacts of stop and search, the harmful impacts of prevent? Why would you want to give young people the opportunity to organize on the climate strikes uh, and on Black Lives Matter? So in the first instance, uh, we would please ask everyone listening in to uh, as Camille said before, to donate to the legal challenge to support our work in this instance, but also join these collectives wherever you are, uh, join these collectives to reimagine and radically transform society. Uh, because, you know, we're at a turning point uh, and unless we take action now, our civil liberties are massively under attack. And, you know, if we don't do something fairly soon, we may not have anything left to fight for in a few years. 
yeah I think it's so important not to end on a on a negative note because actually yeah like I said before at the beginning like in the midst of all of this it is very dark it can you can often feel hopeless and we're when you when you talk about the work that care and be are doing it's like you're literally fighting and resisting against an attack of civil liberties and that's in itself is just something that I'm sure many people will wake up and say yeah I won't pick that fight and so it is really important, I guess, to to pick up on and like draw upon sort of positives. I think the work that we're, the mission we're on currently now is more than just, you know, making sure that they do another U-turn and that they withdraw this guidance. I think it's actually establishing the fact that we are now at a point in time whereby we realise that change is possible and that change is very much needed. And I think yeah maybe it's taken a global pandemic for us to reach this conclusion but at least we have come to this point because let's say March although people were having these conversations I don't think it was again at the level that we are now and at the point that we are now which whereby people that weren't involved in these conversations people who weren't um, willing to engage in these conversations or even reflect on the, the sort of topics that we are now are doing so and I think that is the positive out of the situation and I think despite the guidance despite the situation we're currently in now we just need to keep pushing for it we need to keep challenging the legislation that have been put forward so we're not silent and the conversations keep happening um I think the guidance is super super confusing for me as a young person and I'm sure for many adults as well and so I would definitely encourage people to anyone listening to like actually read into it um, and have conversations from the moment I heard about the guidance the first thing I did when I get back got back to school was ask my teachers like what do you think about it speaking to my my own peers like what do you think about it um, and jokes are kind of made by my teachers especially because I'm a politics student where they say oh like am I even allowed to say this because it's just like it's so ridiculous on so many levels it's like we need to be taught um, from both sides as the, as the government are proposing that they want but it's not happening and um, through this guidance that's not you know encouraged to happen um and so yeah I just think with the work that I'm doing with people power being involved with groups like no more exclusions and supporting um this now um this fight against what the government are doing it's just really important to make sure that young people especially are feeling empowered to join in to these conversations and as like people power what we try to do is make sure that young voices are centered um, and that we're involved in the decision making processes and that our experiences are at the forefront because decisions are being made ultimately around our own experience of school and our own experience of education and so we definitely need to be involved in this in this fight against it and in this mission of transformation because it's it's our education ultimately and so I guess to to conclude it's just like yeah keep supporting keep putting yourselves in uncomfortable situations or holding those uncomfortable conversations and be willing to learn and be willing to challenge things and be willing to criticise. Fantastic. What a moment to end on. Just to pull one thing from your statement where you, uh, from your intervention there, where you said change is possible. What we can clearly see, you know, as a result of this guidance is the fact that this guidance was only created because actually change is coming and that's why they're so keen to stem it. So 100%. just before we to find out more, please go to crowdjustice.com slash case slash liberate our classrooms uh, to find out about the challenge that the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators and the Black Educators Alliance have got going against the Department for Education. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. If you want to find out more about us, you can give any of these organizations a Google and we'll turn up in the results. Thank you for joining us and thank you to Surviving Society for giving us the opportunity to highlight our case and the work that we're doing. 
Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.